Let's grab our Bibles, open up to the book of Esther, chapter 5. We'll continue this series on the covert God, God working behind the scenes as uh, he has always, but is so very evident in the book of Esther. Esther, chapter 5. Let's pray as we get started. Father God, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that your spirit would be free to work in our hearts and minds today and that... Uh, that the message that is given would not be in any way hindered by anything I say, but God, these would be the words that you would desire to encourage, to challenge, to build us up, to um, strengthen us, to change us, to transform us. God, those are our prayer requests this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're, we're right in the middle of the story of Esther uh, right now. And last week, we began looking at the courage of Queen Esther. And, and we left her standing inside the inner court of the king. And she did not know whether she was going to live or die at that moment because this was a place where it was illegal for anyone to be without a direct invitation from the king. And what brought her to that point to, to, uh, to do this was the despicable plans of Haman who had arranged a, a royal decree from King Ahasuerus allowing for the extermination of the entire Jewish race. And of course, Esther was uh, Jewish, uh, but uh, she had kept that a secret from the king and, and from the court. Remember, Mordecai had asked her just not to tell her heritage early on. And so nobody around the court knew that. Uh, Esther's cousin, Mordecai, uh, who had also raised her, so it's, a, it's a, her stepdad as well, he had, when all of this went down, then encouraged Esther to go to the king and, and to plead their cause. And after three days of fasting, which would have also most likely uh, involved many, many hours of prayer, Esther put on her royal robes and stepped into the forbidden throne room in front of the king. And perhaps by putting on her royal robes, right, she was hoping that Ahasuerus would see that and, and think, oh, this is my queen. Maybe I shouldn't kill her. Uh, you know, uh, w whatever the plan there. But, uh, you know, since he was uh, a man with a very volatile uh, temper, um, she had no way of knowing how he would respond. And so, no doubt, she uh, walked into that room with a great deal of fear coursing through her veins, you know, that heart pounding, hands trembling, eyes dilating, uh, cold sweat, rapid breathing kind of fear because she didn't know whether she was going to die in the next few minutes. And that's true courage, isn't it? Doing what you know needs to be done in spite of the fear that you may have to face. But once again, we see that, that God was working already for her behind the scenes. Verse 2 says, When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Uh, the only way a person could live who came unannounced, uninvited into the throne room was if the king, in that instant when he saw you, took the scepter in his hand 
and chose to extend it towards you. If he held it, the guards come and you died. But he extended it to Esther, and, and that gave her the invitation to come forward, and, and she touched the top of the scepter. was kind of like if you've seen in movies and stuff where people kiss the rings of the king and stuff like that. It's this sign of, of reverence and subservience to the king. That's what touching the top of the scepter was. And uh, uh, basically, it kind of stroked the king's ego and made him feel good. And, and, and speaking of feeling good, obviously Esther had to be greatly relieved at this moment when she saw the king extend that scepter towards her, allowing her to live and approach the throne. And, and the king is, is uh, perceptive enough. I mean, I know we, we've painted him as a bad guy, uh, basically because he is. I mean, he, he's got this vile temper. He, he kills people when he wants to. He does these different things, all this kind of stuff. But, but he uh, obviously has some skills uh, or you don't rise to leadership like this. And, and uh, he was perceptive enough to realize that something was really bothering Esther because she would not normally come barging into the throne room like this at, at peril and risk of her own life unless there was something important, right? I mean, he had chosen her as queen over five years ago now. She had never once broken protocol before. And so this no doubt picked his curiosity What's she doing here? Wonder what's going on. Why, why, why is she come and done this? And, and so then look at verse 3. Then the king said to her, what, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? He knew he had to come in here for some reason. And then he adds this. Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Now, you know, when I was a kid and I first heard or a little older and read this this story for myself i always wondered why didn't esther just blurt out to the king right then and there what she wanted i mean the king seemed to be in a pretty accommodating mood right he didn't kill her and 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 he said man up to half of my kingdom you can have that seems like a pretty open door to me why didn't she tell him what she wanted um it wasn't until, you know, years later that I learned he wasn't really willing to give her half his kingdom. Um, that was actually just a, a saying that was, you know, kind of popular amongst the royal um, uh, class. Uh, actually, you find it several times in the Bible, and, and, it, and it literally meant, hey, what do you want? Whatever you want, I'll give it to you within reason. That, that, that's basically what that, that phrase meant. And uh, Esther was smart enough to know that this wasn't the right time. I mean, me, if it were me, I'd have, oh yeah, well, I'd blurted it right out because, you know, he seemed to be on her side at that point. But uh, I didn't understand as a kid the personal and relational dynamics that were going on at that time. I believe part of that three days of fasting and, and praying uh, was Esther uh, seeking God's wisdom and then thinking through and strategizing how best to confront the king about Haman because, remember, the king really liked Haman, right? I mean, he had promoted him to the second most powerful position in the kingdom below only himself. 
And, and you just don't do that with someone that you don't have a lot of faith and trust in. They, they had this, this powerful relationship going on. I mean, being the top two guys in the country, carrying the responsibility for leading, administering uh, the entire empire, I mean, that would mean that Haman and, and Ahasuerus probably spent a great deal of time together. You know, power lunches, late nights in the office, to, uh, weekend golf outings at the country club. I mean, these guys were together a, a, a lot. And, and so the king probably would not take kindly to someone pointing a, an accusing finger at Haman. He wouldn't be too keen on, on opposing or going against anything that Haman had already succeeded in proposing, which we know he already did with this edict to, to kill the Jews. And, and so Esther had... Uh, and remember also that Haman had promised the king a large bribe, a big bunch of money to come into his coffers uh, with this proposal. So Esther was going not, not only against this positive relationship that these two had, but against all this money. Uh, she had that working against her. So she had, to, she had to tread very carefully, proceed quite tactfully if she was going to uh, gain a willing hearing from the king. So she uh, very wisely uh, did not blurt out uh, what she wanted right at that moment. It's probably what I would have done and ruined the whole thing. Uh, she, she diplomatically asked the king to a private party. Look at verse 4. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. So now she was bringing the the two key figures in this drama together, and, and likely she was looking for an opportunity to show the king uh, the folly uh, of Haman's murderous plan. And, and, you know, it would have been natural for Esther to invite Haman along to this private party as, as he was, you know, the second in command, the, this, this uh, high position that he held in the land. So that would have seemed normal. And now the king, of course, again, was smart enough to know that uh, Esther hadn't risked her life uh, to enter the throne room uninvited just to invite the king and Haman uh, to a dinner party. I mean, he knew that wasn't her, her real request. So, so this just kind of served to heighten the tension. He, he's saying, okay, it's, it's, it's yet to come. And uh, it might also have suggested to him that perhaps somehow Haman was involved in whatever this request would be, although chances are he wouldn't have thought anything negative uh, about that at the moment. Uh, but that would have uh, piqued his curiosity. So he really wanted to see what was going on. Now, you know, you know what I find is really interesting about this request that she made? She had already prepared the banquet. Did, did you notice that? Come to the banquet that I've already, the, the one I've prepared for you. She did that not knowing if she was even going to live, let alone whether the king would be open or receptive to the request for the banquet. She prepared that banquet in advance, trusting God to work. 
which I believe is the first key lesson that we can learn from, from this part of her story. If we're following God, if we're doing something because we know it is the right thing to do and we believe it is what God wants us to do, then we need to plan and prepare and plan on God working. We need to prepare and act as if we know God is going to do what He needs to do, even when we don't know for sure what the future holds. And once again, we see the actions of God working behind the scenes to do these things on her behalf. Remember the verse from Proverbs we, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago? The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So in this case, God moved the king to look favorably. It says he looked with favor upon Esther and he extended the scepter and allowed her to live and and allowed her to make this request. And and then he moved the king's heart to be open to this request that she had uh, made um, uh, for this banquet. I mean, it would have been easy for him to say, you know, I'm I'm really busy. This is not a good time. My calendar is booked. You should have given me more notice. You know, I can't just do things spur of the moment like this. Uh, Maybe some other time. And remember, he hadn't called for her, hadn't seen her in the last 30 days. So Esther was not really at the top of his priority list at that moment. And yet God moved in his heart to readily accept this invitation which she had made. That's the way God's providence works. He, he turned the king's heart where he wanted it to go. And I hope we understand that it's not only the king's heart that God can move in. The king, as, as the most powerful man in the land, is merely an example, right, showing us that God can move and work in anybody's heart. Which means whatever situation you're dealing with, whoever may be involved with your circumstances, you need to prepare and act on the basis of trusting that God is at work. We do that because the Bible teaches that God is always at work, right? Uh, Jesus put it this way. My father is working until now. That whole, whole idea means he's, he's constantly working. He, he keeps working. And I myself am working. God is always at work. Now, as we do that and as we look for God to work in our lives in our particular situation, there's, I think, three important things we need to understand about the way God works. One, first of all, the fact that God is working doesn't mean that God is going to do exactly what you want him to do. Okay, we, we, we need to make that clear. We, we can't presume on God, making him like some puppet to carry out all of our whims and wishes. It's when we're working according to God's will that we can be certain that he is working as well. Uh, second thing to keep in mind, this also doesn't mean that God is working on your timetable. Okay, that's important to understand. He is at work, but it may be much slower or different time schedule than you desire. And sometimes we're tempted to think when God delays that he's not doing anything. 
But we need to understand he is working as scripture says. But it's according to his schedule, not yours. And then the third the thing we, we also need to keep in mind. Uh, sometimes God works in at least what is to us very unexpected ways. You know, uh, we may have what we believe is the perfect plan. And if God would just follow these three steps, everything will work out great. And then God does something totally different. In fact, God's going to do some unexpected things uh, in, in Esther's situation here, but we were not going to get to that for a couple of weeks. But, but uh, God often works in an unexpected way. So don't try to hold him to your plan, but understand and go with what he does because his plans are always far better than our own. Okay, back to the story of Esther. Esther planned, prepared uh, this party for the king and Haman, uh, trusting for God to work. Uh, But uh, you you may have noticed that the title uh, in the bulletin for today's message was Two Parties. For Haman, not, not just one. And th- this is just the first party, uh, Esther's banquet here. Look at verse 5. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. This was, this was the first party, a right now event. She was ready for it right then and there. Uh, she had everything set up, believing that God was going to give her this opportunity to fulfill her mission. And the king immediately got Haman. And they showed up and went to the party. And the text goes on to tell us, you know, they, they had the banquet and as they were sitting around drinking their wine which means that they were probably now done with the meal and they're sipping on their wine afterwards and the king he's been wondering this whole time why did esther come what what what's her request and so he he asks her again what her request is and and um uh, she he knew it had to be something incredibly important. And and no doubt Haman, again, who had no idea what Esther's background is, he's very interested in what's going on, what what could possibly be happening and going on between the king and queen there. So he's uh, watching with interest as well. And, and, And now there's two possibilities for what happens next because Esther doesn't tell the king what her request is. She doesn't tell him what's going on and, and what a stinking, rotten, uh, nefarious soul Haman is or any of that kind of stuff. And, and so there's two possibilities. One, she chickened out. The pressure's on. She's on the spot. Haman's sitting there. The king's sitting there. It's possible she chickened out. I don't think that's it. Uh, remember, she had already determined beforehand that she was willing to die for this cause. So, so I don't think she, remember the, uh, if I perish, I perish. She had, she had already come to that conclusion. I don't think she chickened out. So that leaves the second, the most likely scenario is that she sensed that it was not yet the right time to expose Haman and his plot. The king had put her on the spot though, so she had to respond with something. So again, with with good tact and wisdom, here's what she said. Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I prepare for them tomorrow and I will do as the king says. So basically, she's saying, give me another day. 
Give me another day. Come to this meal that I'm going to prepare for you tomorrow. And at that meal, I promise, then I'll tell you what my request is and you can act on it. That, that's what she's telling him. And, and again, uh, this just heightens the curiosity on the part of the king, but they both agree. King and Haman agree, and, and uh, they're going to come to the party tomorrow. And thus ends the first party of Haman for that day. Now, the, the second party that he attends is not the banquet uh, that uh, she is planning for tomorrow, because we're not going to get to that yet. Um, rather, the second party happens right after this party. Uh, it starts on the way home, verse 9. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. Man, this, this guy was happy and one proud dude. He was thinking that he was sitting on top of the world as far as things in the kingdom went. But that happiness did not last very long because look at the rest of verse 9. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. He, he went from joyful and proud to filled with anger just like that. And it was all because Mordecai wouldn't bow down, wouldn't pay that homage to him that the king had said. And it ate at him, it consumed him, and it filled him with anger. And he went home and he called his friends together and his wife together to start the second party, his pity party. He began the pity party by bragging about what a great guy he was. It says, Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. How'd you like to be at that party? There's nothing like sitting around all night listening to a guy boast about himself, how wonderful he is, how great a person he is. He went even on to, to crow about how, how Esther had invited him to, to this exclusive party that was just the king and queen and me. I mean, it's just us. I'm the only one that got to go. And guess what? She's doing another one tomorrow and invited just me. But then he gets down to the pity part. Yet, he says, all this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You see, in Haman's mind, it was that Jew, that no good for nothing Jew that was the cause of all his misery. Now, he, he of course, didn't realize that the real problem was his own heart and his attitude. It was far easier to blame his unhappiness on someone else. Now, I've said this before. Some of the best lessons we can learn from Scripture are from those who get it wrong. Haman's focus was what, on what he didn't get. The adoration from Mordecai that he thought he deserved rather than on all those things that he did have, that he just got done detailing, right? And his focus on the negative made him miserable. And it led, led him into bitterness and rage. A bitterness 
that could end up causing misery for many people since it inspired his murderous plan to exterminate not just Mordecai, but that whole Jewish race. You know, that principle is still true for us today. A focus on the negative, on what is wrong, on what you don't have, on how you've been hurt and how you've been done wrong. will always lead to problems. Almost always leading to depression, discouragement, eventually bitterness. Now, of course, the, the good news for us is that we have a choice. A choice on what we focus on. Hebrews 12.15 tells us, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many be defiled. That verse means, right, that we don't have to let bitterness spring up. We don't have to let it happen. We don't have to get angry and discouraged and depressed and then bitter over uh, the negative things that come into our lives. Why? Because we have the grace of God. When we give in to the negative, we fall short of that grace, as, as the verse says there. But one aspect of the grace of God that he gives us is that power, that ability to rise above and overcome those negative things that happen in our life. Now, Haman did not have that grace of God active in his life, and so he just took it to this pity party and descended deeper and deeper into his anger and depression. Even after listing all these good things in his life, it wasn't enough. The one thing he didn't have was all that consumed his thinking. And and notice, it doesn't just negatively affect him, right? In this case, it was going to impact an entire race of people. And we need to understand in our own lives... It's never just us. When we decide to throw our own pity party and focus on the negative and, 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 and moan and whine and complain about this, whatever this negative, whatever this bad thing in their life, it, it's not just you. It's not just going to affect you. In Hebrews it says that our bitterness will cause many to be defiled. It can bring all kinds of destructive forces into your, into your marriage, your family, your church family. So God says, don't let it happen. We have a choice, no matter what the negative thing is that's come into our life, which, which is the second main lesson we can learn from, from this part of the story, right? Choose to focus on that which is good. Haman didn't, and it was his downfall, and it led him down a very dark road. And the truth is that same thing can happen in your life. Not that it'll necessarily lead to murder or mass murder of of people, right? But, But animosity, hatred, bitterness, resentment, disappointment, anger towards others. These are all common results if we focus on the negative. And all of those things are a falling short 
of the grace of God that he's given you to overcome those things. And it will negatively impact you and it will negatively impact others around you. So, so how do we then appropriate that grace of God and, and put into action so we don't let a root of bitterness spring up in, in this uh, uh, part of our life? Well, the Apostle Paul gives a very simple plan in, in uh, Philippians 4.8. Right? It says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellent and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It's choice again, right? It's a matter of focus. What are you going to allow your mind to dwell on? Notice this verse doesn't say that there are no negative things in your life, (laughs) that there aren't bad things. They will be there. They will happen. But what are you going to choose to let your mind dwell on? Uh, This verse is this uh, challenge to us to sift through these things that happen in our life and focus your mind on those things that are good. It's not pretending that everything's good in your life. You, You still have to deal with these things but you don't dwell on them to allow that to consume your heart, your attitude, and your emotions, which will then consume your life. Instead, we want to be consumed by what is pure, lovely, right, good, right? We have a choice. We always have a choice, and the choice to highlight and dwell on that which is good will bring God's grace to bear in your own life, and it will spread to the life of others. Just just like a root of bitterness can spring up and then defile many, right? So can God's grace spring up in your life and flow over and impact many. It can bring healing to already damaged relationships. It can bring strength to already good relationships. It can build up and bring blessing to all those that intersect in our lives. So if you found yourself being tempted by a pity party like Haman, allowing your mind to dwell and focus on that which you don't have, that which hurt you, that which Uh, was bad or wrong, let me encourage you now to take the steps to cut off that root of bitterness which would love to grow in that kind of soil. Kill it by a shift in your focus to that which is good and positive, God-honoring. And not only will that change your life, but it will spread and positively impact so many others. Let's pray. Father God, I know, I know from my own experience how easy it is to focus on the negative. How ten people can say something wonderful and one person can say something bad 
and we focus on the one. Oh God, you, you've given us a choice. A choice to, to allow your grace to be active in, in our lives by focusing on that which is true and good, which is honoring to you. So help us to be able to do that, that out of our lives, there'd be an overflow of grace to others, positively impacting those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.